Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Whole Brother Mission podcast. It is 2021. We made it through another year. Pandemic is still around, but I think we're going to be okay. I'm not going to get into the debate about the vaccine, but you do what you know. Do what's best for you. Uh, <laughs> wear a mask and, and stay home, and, and like I said, do what's best for you. So, I have a guest that I'm excited to have today. Her name is Anna Malika Tubbs, and she's the author of The Three Mothers. How the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped the nation. So I, w- I was not familiar with her before our interview today. Uh, I actually just happened to come across the cover of the book on social media, and I thought, wow, that is something that deserves attention. And specifically, not just because of the three cultural figures mentioned, but the fact that maybe they're being decentered and now their mothers are being centered. And I think that's an important thing as a, as a son of a single mother. I've learned to highlight and give uh, those flowers uh, while they are here uh, because sometimes we get so caught up in our successes. We, we forget to give praise where it's due for those that set us up for success. So I'd like to welcome Anna Malika Tubbs. How are you? Doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Uh, so let's, before we jump into the book, because I have a, a lot of places I want to go, let's get some backstory <laughs> on you. I know you're a mom as well. Could you tell us about your journey here to the, at least let's just stop at the idea. How did you even get to the idea of writing this book? Yeah, thank you so much for asking a little bit more about my own journey and for sharing a little bit about yours as well. Uh, so yes, my name is Ana Malika Tubbs. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but actually spent my life traveling from country to country with my parents who did international law and wanted to expose us, my siblings and I, to different cultures around the world, different ways of believing, thinking, loving, just j- this general lesson that there's so much more than just one truth in the world. And so I grew up in places like Dubai and Estonia, Sweden, Mexico, Azerbaijan, came back to the States when I was a teenager, lived in Laramie, Wyoming, then Indiana. And then I went to school in California, went to Stanford for my undergrad, um, then traveled outside of the US again to get my master's at the University of Cambridge. I came back to the US to teach um, high school students in Stockton for a couple of years before starting my PhD. So a lot of my journey has been all about just being exposed to different places, different people, um, and thinking of more ways to bring people together. And so even with my own academic journey, I wanted to use my writing to bring more people to the conversation where quite often people feel excluded. When you think about academic theory, many people think it's too complicated, but quite honestly, it's just been written in ways that are not easily, easily decipherable where I think it should be something that's accessible to everybody. And so I wanted to use my degrees to kind of continue on something that my parents had taught me that was about welcoming everybody and bringing more people into the conversation. And the idea for this book really came from so many different sources. I absolutely love my mom. I think she's such an incredible, powerful individual who really formed my path and my journey. So of course that plays a role. But in addition, I've been so inspired by others who have kind of taken up this charge of making sure we're highlighting the stories specifically of black women that have been erased and have been forgotten. So that's Margot Lee Shetterly with Hidden Figures, even before the movie came out, and so many others. 
Isabel Wilkerson doing this with um, the warmth of other suns, not only black women, but the stories of the great migration that have been forgotten. And there were so many other writers who really were highlighting stories that just needed to be told. And so I knew when I started my PhD, I wanted to join them. I wanted to be a part of that team of people who were highlighting those who deserved attention and who had been forgotten. And so I had so many ideas at the beginning when I started. <laughs> That's such a broad topic and there's so many ways, you know, I could have fulfilled that goal. But I started to get really interested in those that existed in kind of the shadows of others who had a spotlight on them very specifically when men have a spotlight on them. And when we think about the civil rights movement, we so often think of these men as if they were kind of like unicorns that popped out of nowhere with fully formed ideas. When in reality, they were raised by families, by communities. And as I dug further into their journeys and the people around them, I was so amazed and blown away by their mother's stories. And from there, it was just really narrowing down which three men I wanted to use, which three mothers I wanted to focus on. But the story I think could have been incredible with so many other examples as well. The reason I settled on these three was because the moms were all born within five years of each other. The sons were all born within five years of each other. So that also added a cool layer of different intersections in their stories. And I could talk about the kind of chronological events that were happening in the US and how it affected each of them so differently, which brought such a cool nuance to the story in terms of highlighting the beauty and the diversity of our black community. Absolutely, and I think that's a great thing to do because once again, so many times, unfortunately, the stories of those who made a huge impact do get overlooked and it can be as a result of cultural dynamics or gender and a variety of things, but we'll get, We'll get into that later. But one thing I wanted I wanted to point out or, or ask about is I commonly hear Martin Luther King addressed in the same spaces as Malcolm X, that they're kind of coupled together. Now, mm -hmm. I think James Baldwin is great, but, you know, I, I don't personally I don't hear him as much in that conversation. So help help the, uh, the audience understand how did James Baldwin find himself in, in, in this context with both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. That's a really good point and actually something that comes up a lot because so many actually haven't even heard of James Baldwin, which for those of us that are huge fans of his work, that seems kind of so crazy to not know about this incredible writer who was so influential, not only in the US, but internationally. But Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. have certainly gained this like level of popularity that, um, that James Baldwin hadn't quite reached yet. But at the same time, I, I started my work sort of a couple years after I Am Not Your Negro came out. So the film that was based on the writings of James Baldwin, where he talks about being a witness to the movement and being a witness to the works of his friends. So speaking about Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers and Malcolm X, and he says he is their witness and he's here to kind of write their story and pay attention and kind of bear witness to the truth. And so I thought as a third partner to these two men who everybody speaks about so often in conversation, I could also add a layer of history that showed how important he also was in that movement. And he was really obviously super influential and he also met both of them. He really did consider them to be close friends of his. So he really is a natural third into that conversation. 
I guess if I were to choose a fourth, it probably would be Medgar Evers. That's the fourth name that would probably naturally come up. But having the notion of the writer and the one who isn't necessarily putting his body on the front lines, not necessarily, I mean, he also was a protester. He was involved in, in those kinds of movements as well, but he's better known for his intellectual capacity and his writing and showing up and talking in front of audiences all over the world. And so I thought it added a really a cool layer. And his mother also has this incredible story of being born in a super small town in Maryland and going on and being a part of the Great Migration, moving to New York, and just being this overall incredibly inspiring person with this almost century of life on earth. And so adding in Virtus just kind of made sense to me. But really, truly, it started with I Am Not Your Negro and James Baldwin speaking about Malcolm and Martin as his friends and him being sort of the kind of glue that brought their ideas together. Got it. So I definitely appreciated that, too, as I was able to peruse through before our interview, as I'm originally from Washington, D.C. and the DMV, Maryland area. So very familiar. And I didn't know that before then. Yeah. Uh, so. I wanted to know your thoughts on why do these stories get overlooked? And I think these aren't necessarily my personal opinions, but I know that there are buzzwords that are thrown around. Some would say these 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 women, and as you answer this question, I'd like for you to, to give the audience the names of each of the, the mothers as well. But uh, is it patriarchy? Is it that these men are just so polarizing that you know, it, it dimmed the light of their mothers. Did the mothers want to be out of the picture? Why do you think that these stories so often get overlooked? Yeah, so to state their names first, Alberta King, Brutus Baldwin, and Louise Little. Definitely names that I'm hoping with this book become household names. And through talking about them, we start to think more about all of the women that are being erased even currently in our conversations. So to answer your question about why I believe their stories have been erased, there are obviously a lot of different factors that contribute to that. But I do wanna first point out that the sons were very clear that their mothers were important in their lives, that they had guided them. There's multiple quotes that I use throughout the books that are or throughout the book that are directly from the sons saying it's because of my mom that I had this, or it's because of my mom that I you know, had this talent or was able to do this, or she believed in me and therefore I could accomplish these things. They often spoke about motherhood as a symbol of what it meant to be a teacher and what it meant to form the world. And even Martin Luther King references his mom when he speaks about the pain that was involved in him being so important in the civil rights movement knowing that there was agony involved, but that at the end, there was gonna be this beautiful kind of birth and creation. And he's referencing a mother's journey through labor. So all three of them spoke about their moms quite often actually. So the question more so turns then to historians, it turns to those who were interviewing them, who were listening to them talk about the people in their lives, but who felt that that wasn't really that interesting or that that wasn't that big of a deal, or that they really weren't appreciating their Black mother's journey that these sons were trying to give credit to. And it's actually even happened in my own experience with my husband, who in his time as mayor of Stockton and being a public figure, would mention his mother, would mention his aunt, would mention his grandmother, would mention me. But so often then when you see the interview cut, 
we're not in it at all. And so it's more of a societal thing. I mean, of course we can talk about it on one-on-one like personal levels in each circumstance and example, but I actually think it comes down more to what in society we value, what in society we see as important work, important labor, what we don't decide to take for granted. We so much think that these women were just doing what they were supposed to do as mothers and therefore it doesn't necessarily make sense to give them the credit that they deserve for persisting in a country that didn't recognize them as human beings because they were black women. And so I think that quite often those stories that were taken and kind of given to the masses were edited to fit a society that doesn't value women and specifically black women. Absolutely, I hear you on that. So where do you think we begin in, in, in resolving that? Obviously uh, telling the stories as you have done but what are some steps that you think, and once again, as an organization that's focused on men, uh, how do we step up and begin to deconstruct some of the aspects of our culture that are covering the stories and work of black women? I believe that a big part of it is doing what you do, even in your own personal journey, which is mentioning your mom mentioning that you know you couldn't be here today without the sacrifices that she made and others made around around you to make sure that you could make it and have the opportunities that they didn't have access to. I think on a personal level, mentioning the people, giving them the credit that they deserve, that kind of recognition, even from someone's child, makes a huge difference in a woman's life and a mother's life and a parent's life because they feel seen, they feel that somebody acknowledges what they've done. So I think on a personal level, that's a great start. On a societal level, and I talk a lot about this in the last chapter of the book where I speak to what their lives mean for our current struggle as black mothers today. Um, there are so many policies that we could pass that would make our lives easier, that would make mothers' lives easier. There should already be access to quality, affordable childcare. There should already be access to a base, a base level of income so that we can have our basic needs met and we can meet the needs of our family members. And I use a couple different examples also of talking about reducing domestic violence, ending domestic violence, thinking about sexual harassment in the workplace, all of these things that need to be addressed. And when we think about the individual lives of these three women, they just showcase the humanity behind what could happen if those changes would have taken place? How much easier things could have been for them? Because of course, I wanna celebrate what they were able to persist past, what they were able to accomplish in their lives despite the obstacles that were put in their path. But really what I want to accomplish is this did not necessarily need to happen. The statement that this did not have to be so difficult. And there are many women today, specifically black women, who are struggling through this. And we always celebrate them for persisting through the challenges versus removing those challenges and obstacles that are in their paths. Understood. So you're a mom and wife, but very much so in the public eye. You have this great book that's on its way out. Uh, Thank you. You're very visible. Which of the three mothers, although you're in much different circumstances, which of the three mothers <laughs> do you identify with the most? Oh, that's a cool question. I haven't been asked that before. It's, I think, a combination of the three. And I actually think that's sort of how many readers will feel as well. 
Burtis Baldwin was this mother who lived her life by the ideal that love was the most important value, the most important thing to keep in your heart and your mind, no matter how hard life became. And she needed to pass that on to her children. And so in her home, even when she couldn't necessarily protect them from the mental illness that her husband was dealing with that made him very abusive and very difficult to live with each and every day, she embraced her children with so much light and love and hope. And so she really felt that like the house was where everything else began. So if she could give them that light and she could hold them and be the best mother she possibly could, that they would go on and kind of share that love and that light with others beyond their household. So of course that's something that I value deeply. I wanna make sure that my son has that love and that warmth because it's not something that's always afforded to black children outside of these walls and outside of our own, our own lives and our own home and our own, our own, um, let me start that one over. So of course it's something that I wanna give to my son, that love and that warmth that we can provide him when he's in our arms, when he's in our home, um, because it's not something that will always be afforded to him as a black child in the United States. From Louise, this radical black feminist activist, Mark Garvey, Pan-Africanist follower, she was incredible. A huge part of the movement, the Marcus Garvey movement, she wrote letters on his behalf, she wrote for their national newspaper, so definitely from her, I feel that relation of that activist in me that won't be silenced, that can't let fear dominate, that you need to just keep speaking and show your kids that bravery is important, that you can, of course, be afraid, but also act despite that fear. And I keep her in my heart, especially, I mean, from the very beginning of even researching this kind of surface level parts of this book, her persistence and her strength is incredibly inspiring. And I think especially her, people are gonna be shocked that they hadn't heard her story before. And then with Alberta King, she was a community leader. She cared about teaching her children as well as her students and her choirs and all of their instruments that she helped to inspire. And I taught for several years, I was a college counselor. And so seeing that mission of equipping our youth and making sure that they have what they need and the support that they need to go on and do their work in the world, even beyond our own family unit is also incredibly inspiring. And for all three of them, keeping their faith alive, whether that was different kinds of spirituality that they all three practiced, but really having a hope in the future of what could be accomplished and what they could do to help the world see their vision of their families, their kids, and their own worth. So I feel like I relate to all three of the women in some way, shape, or form. I'm definitely a combination of, of the three motivations that they live their lives by. Right. So obviously, every timeline for these, uh, these men and their moms is a bit different as far as the time that they were with us and the time that they went away. And I know for listeners, it might may not be historians. I might not be able to keep up with all the different details. Were there any instances where the son passed and the mom was still alive? And how did they how did they deal? How, what was their experience like that you that you know of? Yeah, it's something that I talk about extensively in the book because 
it's so heartbreaking to know at the beginning that all three moms are going to outlive their sons. So we are going to learn about the moms throughout their own journey before they become wives and before they become mothers. We learn about them holding their kiddos so close to their heart when they're born and onward and them seeing them, you know, go off to whatever their path is taking them to as part of this larger civil rights movement, but also knowing, and I mentioned at the very beginning, the sons are going to pass before their mothers. And in two cases, the moms lose two of their children before they pass away. In Burtis Baldwin's case, she lost another one of her sons. And in Alberta King's case, she also lost another one of her sons only 15 months after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it's part of the heartbreaking nature of the story, but also what we're dealing with currently in the US where so many of our children are being taken too early. And again, we celebrate the mothers for their resilience and we celebrate them as heroes in the community, which sure, we wanna make sure that they're again given love and given celebration, especially in these painful times, but this doesn't have to keep happening. And we don't have to keep telling these stories of tragedy if we can get more people, well, not really, it's not our fault. If more people could just listen to what we as black women have been asking for since the beginning of our arrival as slaves in the United States. And it's a fulfillment of our vision of our own humanity. We see others fully in their humanity because we know what it's like to be treated as less than human. And we're seeing this even today, centuries later, thinking about ways in which our humanity is being denied. And that's not only us, that's for our siblings and all different cultures and backgrounds. We care deeply in our community. What it comes down to is humanity. Let us breathe, let us live, because we know what it's like to be suffocated, to have that taken away from us, to see our children pass before their time. Definitely. Uh, and that's an unfortunate reality, right? That we've become so, I guess, cozied up or even numb to, to premature death. Uh, could you speak to the, the mother's uh, transitions as far as what was going on in life at the point where they passed? Yeah, definitely. So Alberta King, and this is again, one of those kind of shocking moments that well, hopefully people feel kind of surprised that they didn't know this if they hadn't already heard that news, but she was also assassinated. She was killed in their church. She was playing the organ and a man who was mentally ill had come in and he actually had the intention of shooting her husband, um, Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. But he decided that when he saw Alberta, she was sitting a little closer to him, that he was going to shoot her instead. And so he shot several people, actually. There were um, other injuries, but Alberta passed away just a few hours later um, after she was shot in her own church, tragically. Bertis Baldwin lived an incredibly long life. Um, she was, it's hard to know exactly her age because her birth date is sort of questioned in history. It was either 1902 or 1903, um, but she lived up until 1999, having witnessed all of this incredible history in this century of the United States. And she passed away in a historically black neighborhood in DC, living with her eldest daughter. And Louise Little, 
who after 26 years of being put away in a mental institution against her will, which she fully believed was because she was this radical activist who spoke openly and proudly about her rights as a black woman, was put away against her will for 26 years because there wasn't anyone in her family who was old enough to kind of claim custody over her. Um, once they were able to, her kids were able to give her her freedom. Um, and she was able to reunite with Malcolm just a year before he was assassinated. But she also ends up living nearly for 100 years. And she passed away in the early 1990s. So when you think about, again, what they witnessed in their lives, it's just absolutely incredible. She lived a much more private life. She wasn't quite as involved in the movement after she was released from the institution, the Kalamazoo Mental Hospital. But she passed away in Woodland Park, which was this community that her daughter formed of Black people who were self-sustaining, who were growing their own plants, all of these things that um, both Louise and her husband had taught their children about the importance of independence and Black independence. Um, and so this daughter makes this a reality and a vision in this community. And that's where Louise was able to pass away peacefully. Thank you for that. I appreciate how you can succinctly just take us through a whirlwind of history that's just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like that's I'm crazy. dying and I'm like, I don't want to give too away. You still have to read right. the book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I never, I, 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 as having recently done uh, interviews after my book release earlier this year, I understand the balance of, well, I want to give them a little bit, but <laughs> go ahead and get it. <laughs> so absolutely, I, I, <laughs> I have said a lot already, but there's so much. So there's a lot left that I haven't shared quite yet. Right. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so in terms of mothers that are seeking to learn something here, because I know I understand that mothers take pride in their their offspring and the successes and the renown of, of their children. So for mothers that are listening that may look at this and say, well, they produce great, great men. What can I learn from these women? What would you say are lessons that mothers can take from these, these three women? Oh, the book is filled with so many incredible lessons. And for me personally, it was such a cool project to be working on because I started it even before I was pregnant with my son. And then, you know, my husband and I found ourselves expecting and I was so excited, but also nervous, all these nerves that come with becoming a mother and the fears, especially for black mothers, when we know about the black maternal health crisis in the US. Um, and then afterward, you know, you're holding your little baby, your bundle of joy, and you're so <laughs> worried about the things that can happen. There's just so many fears that come with the love and with the excitement. And so having these three mothers and their examples of what they did to face those fears, what they did to still find joy in life, to still find love, no matter what was thrown their way, to make sure that their children knew that they were part of something larger, despite their different levels of access to resources, despite their different levels of access to you know, education, um, they all three taught them that they were going to be part of something larger and really equipped them to face the realities of the world, but also see their own worth and use that kind of love that they were embedding them with 
to help others on their journey and to kind of, you know, transform the world. And so that's where the subtitle comes from, you know, through their lessons and their teachings and telling their children about their own worth and also giving their children a charge that they'd been given from their own parents and passing that on, they're shaping the nation. That's how Martin Luther King, Malcolm X and James Baldwin knew that they had to do something, that they couldn't just sit and watch. Absolutely, thank you for that. So in closing, uh, I definitely appreciate how much you've given to us, but I will also add again, there is so much that you didn't give us, which is good <laughs> because I want people to go get the book. So for those that are interested, please let them know where the book is available and also how they, how they can connect with you. Absolutely. The book is available anywhere that books are sold. And as much as possible, I definitely want to support our Black-owned independent bookstores. So if you go to the threemothersbook.com, there's a bunch of links on there um, and you can just click them. But of course, support independent bookstores as much as you can. The threemothersbook.com is the easiest way to, to find everything. And at the bottom of the page are both my social media links on Instagram and Twitter. And I'd be more than happy to, to connect and I'm just really excited to continue to build this conversation. And I want as many of you involved as possible. Absolutely. And we thank you for your contributions to this conversation. This is Malik Blade, and this has been another episode of the Whole Brother Mission Podcast.